Well, welcome to Two Cities. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. And whether you are joining us from the lobby, we see you out there or in this room, we are glad you are here. For the last month, we have been in a series on the book of James, and we've talked about a variety of things. We've talked about trials. We've talked about temptations. We've talked about what does it look like to be doers of the word and not just hearers. Well, last week was a special and unique week for our church because we had our first ever Compassion Sunday. And for those who missed it, Compassion International is a Christian organization that we have been partnering with, and their goal is this, to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. And so going into last weekend, we had the goal of sponsoring 300 children from Uganda. Well, why 300? Well, because basically our kids' ministry is about 300 kids. And so we are very excited to share that as of this morning, our church has sponsored 417 kids from Uganda. And we are just so encouraged by this. We're so excited. We have heard a lot of great stories from families, you know, parents talking to kids about this. It's just been awesome. Probably my favorite story was hearing from Pastor Stephen about his son Crosby. So last week, Stephen went over to the kids' building and got his son Crosby out of the kids' ministry, and he took him to the tent to go pick out a child to sponsor. And Crosby got out to the tent, and he's, he's looking around, and he's looking underneath the tables, and then he looks up, and he says, he says, Dad, where are the kids? <laughs> and he said, they're not here, buddy. They're in Uganda. But um, Olivia and I, we are, we are excited to be sponsoring a little two-year-old girl ourselves. We have a 10-month-old, and we wanted to pick a, a child that was close in age. And so it'll probably be a while until they can write letters back and forth. So we'll probably just have them send some finger paint or something. But um, if you are here and you would like to sponsor a child and you have not yet, you, st- you have two options. One option, on your way out, you can stop by the welcome tent. There's still kids out there, or there's cards of kids, not actual children. There are still some cards out there that are of kids without a sponsor, so you can, you can do that. Or what you can do is you can text two cities to the link behind me on the screen. So like I said, over the last four weeks, we have been in James chapter one. And the big theme of James chapter one is loving God. Well, today we're gonna start in James chapter two. And the big theme of James chapter two is loving people. And what James is gonna do is he's gonna start off by talking about the sin of partiality or the sin of favoritism. Now, when I say the word favoritism, what, what do you think of? Some of you probably think of your grandmother, how she always had a favorite grandchild. Some of you probably think of the teacher's pet in school. Some of you probably were the teacher's pet. Well, when I think of favoritism, I always think of the Little League baseball team where little Timmy's dad is the head coach. And because little Timmy's dad is the head coach, Timmy gets to pitch every other game, even though he's like the eighth best pitcher on the team, And even though he's not a good hitter, he's getting hit lead off. And, you know, you're watching these games and you're just like, Timmy is not good. It's like, why? Why is Timmy getting to pitch again? He's walked the first four batters again. Like, can we please put Timmy out in right field where he belongs? (laughs) But, But that's not what happens. But things like this happen because of favoritism. Now, favoritism, as we're gonna see here in this passage, is actually much more of a serious thing. Basically, the question that James is gonna ask is this. How do you treat people who are not like you? What is your attitude like towards rich people or poor people? What is your attitude like towards the elderly who might not contribute as much to society or the unborn or black people or white people or the homeschool mom versus the mom who who works? 
what is your attitude like towards people who are not like you? And here's why this text is so important. It's because as Christians, we must be distinct and different from the world. The way that we treat the poor, the way that we treat the most vulnerable, it must be different than how the world treats them. The world shows partiality, but we must not. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab those and flip to James chapter two, starting verse one is where we're gonna start. James two, verse one says this. My brothers, so he's talking to Christians, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so the first thing that James does here to set the stage for an illustration on partiality is he says that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. So this is one of only two places in the entire book of James where Jesus' name is mentioned. And so saying that Jesus is the Lord of glory means that he is supreme or he is above all things. Well, this makes you ask the question, well, why is Jesus the Lord of glory? Well, we see in Philippians 2 that Jesus' humiliation is what led to his exaltation. In Philippians 2, we see that Jesus, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant or taking the form of a poor man. And then what he did is he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so his humiliation is what led to his exaltation. Then it says, therefore, because he humbled himself, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. And so Jesus' humiliation leads to his exaltation. And the reason that James starts by saying that Jesus is the Lord of, Lord of glory is because you cannot view man rightly until you first view Jesus rightly. No other worldview other than the Christian worldview will lead to the vulnerable being treated like they're supposed to be. What will atheism say? Atheism will say, well, it's just the survival of the fittest. Hinduism will say, well, it's all about karma. What goes around comes around. And this is where you'll see the caste system. If, if you look at Islam, you know, men and women certainly aren't treated, treated equally. But viewing Jesus rightly, beholding him in his glory is what will lead to viewing others rightly and treating others rightly. Faith and favoritism are incompatible. And so what James says, he says, don't look down at others, but instead look up to Christ, the Lord of glory. And he says, do not show partiality. Well, what is partiality? How do you define it? So partiality is treating someone differently based on their outward appearance or their worldly advantages. So outward appearance. So what do we think of most, just what's the first thing we think of when we think outward appearance? Well, we think of race. Now, does it apply to race? Yes. But as we're gonna see in this text, outward appearance also applies to socioeconomic status. And so partiality can be treating someone differently based on their outward appearance, but also worldly advantages. Or maybe you could say it's treating someone differently based off their lack of a worldly advantage. This applies to rich people, to poor people, to the elderly, to those who are disabled. And so if partiality is treating someone differently based on their outward appearance or their worldly advantages, what is partiality not? And here's why this is important, is because our culture has a lot of different ideas about what equality looks like, about what fairness looks like, about how we should treat one another. And so the first thing that partiality is not is partiality is not a hierarchy of competence. So what is a hierarchy of competence? So this is when someone in an organization or on a team is given a certain position or given a certain responsibility because of their ability or their competency. And so if Timmy is good enough to make it on the middle school baseball team, but he's the 13th best player on the team and the coach plays the best nine every game, is that showing partiality? 
people know. It's like that, that's just competency. This is a hierarchy of competence. But the thing about this is that culture will say that a competency hierarchy is oppressive. Culture, what they want is they want equal outcomes. Now, do we want equal opportunities? Yes, of course, we want equal opportunities. But equality of outcome is just not really anything that's possible. Now, some of you, I'm sure you have a family or you know of a family where there's been maybe three kids in the family. And for whatever reason, two of the kids, they went one direction. They had a lot of success, at least worldly speaking. And one of the kids, for whatever reason, just didn't have as much success. They just went in a totally different direction. Now, did they have equal opportunity? Yes, of course. But the, the outcome was different. Why? It's because the only way to achieve equality of outcome is by lots and lots of social engineering. As long as there is equal opportunity, some people are going to inevitably prosper more than others. And so here's what you should want. You should want fair hierarchies of competence. Why? Because if your mom needs a heart valve replaced, then you better hope that there is a fair hierarchy of competence when it comes to the cardiothoracic surgeons. So that when you're trying to figure out who you want to do her surgery, you can pick one who's the best so that she has a good outcome. And so partiality is not a hierarchy of competence. The second thing partiality is not is prioritizing. Now, is it wrong to prioritize certain relationships over others? Well, no, of course not. From a two-city church standpoint, the pastors and elders of two-city church, we are primarily responsible for leading, feeding, knowing and protecting the members of Two Cities Church. That is our primary responsibility. Now, if, if someone from another church comes and, and they're a member somewhere else, do we want to help them and come alongside them however we can? Of course, but we are primarily responsible for the Two Cities Church members. And so prioritizing is not the same as partiality. And so James starts verse one by saying, don't look down on others, but look up to Christ. Don't show partiality. And now what we're gonna see is he's gonna give us an illustration on what it looks like to show partiality. And so we're going to start back again, starting in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So this passage, it's 2,000 years old, but it is timeless. And here's why I love this passage is because it still applies today. And so here's what's happening. Two strangers walk into a church gathering. And I know it sounds sort of like a bar joke, but it's not. <laughs> Two strangers walk into a church gathering. And the reason we know, we know they're strangers is because they don't know where to sit. And what the church does is, is they, they, the, the rich man, so the rich man has on a gold ring and fine clothes. And then the poor man is in shabby clothes. And what the church does is they, they send the poor guy off to the side and say, you sit over there. And then to the rich man, they give him the best seat in the house. They let him sit in the front row. I guess this is probably before back row Baptist was a thing. And, and so the rich guy gets the seat in the front row. And what James is saying here is he says, this is showing partiality. And he says, what you are doing is evil. Now, this is exactly what we see so often in churches today. Churches today tend to prioritize wealth over wisdom. Wealth over wisdom. Some of you have been in churches just like this, where the Joneses give a lot of money to the church, 
And because they give a lot of money to the church, we're going to give them a view and a voice and a vote into everything that the church does. And so Mr. Jones, he's going to be the head of the deacons, even though he certainly doesn't meet the biblical qualifications. And Mrs. Jones, we're going to let her teach Sunday school, even though she's quarrelsome and she's bitter and no one respects her. This is what happens, and it's just messy because people prioritize wealth over wisdom. Now, is it a sin to be wealthy? No, of course not. I mean, we see, we see Abraham, Job, King David, all were wealthy. In fact, being rich and godly is a very, very good thing. The amount of darkness that a rich, godly person can push back by supporting things financially is, is significant. If, if you have been blessed financially, then that gives you a great opportunity to be a blessing to others. And so to be rich doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily a sin to be rich. It's not a sin to be poor. But also, and we need to be clear about this, sometimes people are wealthy because they are wise. I mean, there definitely is a correlation between wisdom and wealth. Now, there, it, this, this idea is clear in the book of Proverbs. But just because you're wealthy doesn't necessarily mean you're wise. And so something that's really interesting to think about that we, we probably don't think about this very often is why is it that we are drawn to rich people? Like, why is it if someone is rich, we want to get closer to them? Well, I, I think there's a lot of reasons. But if I could boil it down to just two, I would say, well, first of all, we want to be around rich people because we feel like if we are get inside of their circle, we can benefit from them personally. And so that's nice. You know, if, if, you, if you know the rich guy with, with the mansion and the pool, it's like, well, that's a good thing. And so we, we want to be around rich people in that sense. But there's also something else about it. If someone is rich, then that often will mean that they've had a lot of success in a particular area. And so you sort of feel like they know something that you don't, and you can learn from them in a good way. But why is it in our culture that so many people seem to care what rich celebrities think about things like foreign policy. It's because our culture often prioritizes wealth over wisdom. But what James is saying, he says, this is not how it's supposed to be in the church. Wealth should not be prioritized over wisdom. Something else that you can see in the first couple verses here is that there is a close connection between showing partiality and being judgmental of others. Look back with me at verse four. So in verse four, James says, if you treat the poor man differently than the rich man, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so what James does here is he gives us a picture of what it looks like to be judgmental. You see, our culture hates the idea of being judged. People in, in the culture will say, well, who are you to judge me? Who are you to tell me that my lifestyle is sinful? And I'm sure that in a room this size, some of you have confronted someone else about their sin and they have responded to you by saying something like, well, I just, I just feel like you're judging me right now. Like, like, doesn't the Bible say, judge not lest you not be judged? Well, yes, it does. But, and so I guess the question to ask here is, how do we see the church being judgmental in this passage? So here's what happens. The rich man and the poor man walk into the gathering and they observe that one of the persons seems, that one guy seems to be rich and the other guy appears to be poor. Now, is it wrong to make an observation? Well, no, it's like you might be wrong, but it's not wrong to observe something. And so they assess the position of both the rich man and the poor man. But then what do they do? After they assess the position, they take the poor man and they say, hey, you sit off here to the side and they give the rich guy the good seat. And so you are not being judgmental when you assess someone's position. You are being judgmental when you dismiss someone as a person. And so here's how this would play out. Let's say one of you were to walk up to me after the service and you were to say, hey, Spencer, 
I have to confess a pretty serious sin to you. I've been cheating on my spouse. Now, would it be sinful for me to look back at you and say, adultery is a sin? No, no that, wouldn't be, that wouldn't be sinful. That would just be me assessing your position and telling you the truth. Now, if you came to me and said that and I said, adultery is a sin, now get away from me. I don't wanna be around an adulterer. Now, would that be judgmental? It's like, yes, why? Because after I assessed your position and told you the truth, I dismissed you as a person. But what if you came to me and I said, hey man, this is a serious issue. You need to repent of this. But what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take a step toward you and bring you close and we're gonna try to walk through this and get this together. Now that of course would not be judgmental because that's exactly what we see Jesus Christ doing in the scriptures. You see, for whatever reason, I think that some people tend to have an idea of Jesus in their head that does not correspond to reality. For some reason, people think of Jesus as walking around in his flip-flops. He's sort of hippie Jesus. He's got a flower in his hair. He's sort of holding up peace signs. You know, he's just walking around saying, who am I to condemn you? What you're doing is already legal in Colorado. <laughs> but, but this is not the Jesus that we see in the scriptures. I mean, Jesus says in John 7, he says, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And, and we see the same thing from Jesus' followers. John the Baptist was beheaded for confronting Herod about sexual sin. Paul tells us, he says, that we, we as Christians need to rebuke the worlds of darkness. But after Jesus would tell people the truth, instead of dismissing them, what he would, what he would do is he would bring them close. And so Jesus gives us an example of how to judge without being judgmental. So how do you know that you might be judgmental? So I wrote down four ways that you know that you might know you're being judgmental. So the first is you might be judgmental if you have cut off those who disagree with you. And so if you disagree with someone so strongly on politics or COVID or homeschool versus private school versus public school or religion, that you cut them off totally, then that might be a sign that you're being judgmental. You see, some of you love your position on certain issues more than you love the person with whom you disagree. Some of you love being right so much that you aren't able to maintain the relationship if someone disagrees with you. Now, should we dull our convictions? No, we should have strong convictions. Our convictions should be sharp. Our convictions should have edges, but our attitudes towards other people that we disagree with should not be edgy. You need, you need to love the person that you're interacting with more than you love being right. And so that's the first way. The second way you might be judgmental is if you are more fixated on someone else's sin than you are convicted by your own. So over the last week, whose sin have you been most fixated on? Whose sin do you find yourself dwelling on? Is, is it your sin or, or is it somebody else's? Because Jesus talks about this exact idea in Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter seven. He says that you need to get the log out of your own eye before you try to get the speck out of your brother's eye. But this is what's happened so often. This is the guy who is lecturing his community group about being generous, but he's cheating on his taxes. Very timely example, it's tax season. This is the same guy who is talking about his friend who's, who's lazy. He's being, well, my friend's lazy. He doesn't work hard. 
But at the same time, he's a workaholic and he never sees his kids. And so you might be judgmental if you're more fixated on someone else's sin than you are convicted by your own. The third way you might be judgmental is if you are unable to forgive. So when you fail to forgive, if you are a Christian, basically what you are saying is, I know that God has forgiven me in Christ. I know that God has reconciled me to himself, but I'm not going to forgive you for what you have done to me. And if that is your position, then that shows that you might be being judgmental. And Jesus would compare this, this exact, exact situation to, a, to someone who has been forgiven of billions of dollars turning around and holding someone accountable who owes them five bucks. Because Jesus says, if you have been the recipient of such great mercy, then the only logical response to that is to be merciful to others. And so you might be judgmental if you fail to forgive. The fourth way you might be judgmental is if you write someone off as hopeless. If you write someone off as hopeless. Who in your life do you feel like is too far gone for God to save them? Who in your life have you written off as hopeless? Because here's what I know, that some of you who are sitting in this room or in the lobby, some of you at, at some point, someone else viewed you as hopeless. Someone else viewed you as being too far gone. Now, but aren't you grateful that, that someone somewhere didn't give up on you? Of course you are. And so instead of being judgmental, we are called to assess someone's position. We're called to tell them the truth, and then we're called to bring them close. So now let's pick back up in verse five. And so now what we're gonna see is we're gonna see what James says to the church about being judgmental. So here's verse five. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor, the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And so when this passage was written, basically what would often happen is that rich people would often drag poor people into court to exploit them for financial gain. And what James is saying here is he, he's saying to the church, he's saying, the rich people are the ones who are treating people unfairly. And so why on earth are you giving them the preferential treatment? And what James is saying here is that partiality is dishonorable because you have often let your preferences become your prejudices. And so I would ask you, have you let any of your preferences become your prejudices? You know, it's fine. Now, disclaimer, it's fine to have preferences. It's totally fine to prefer to drive a certain car or to live in a certain neighborhood or wear certain clothes. That's totally fine. But the temptation is to let those preferences become our prejudices. Now, as, as I've prepared this, I've had to search my own heart this week and just ask myself, where do I need to repent in these areas? But I really think that all of us in here need to answer this question. How do you act towards people who are not like you? See, here's the thing about the sin of partiality. Partiality, treating people differently based on their outward appearances or worldly advantages. Partiality is at the root of a lot of very clear and obvious sins that we see all the time. And some of these sins are sensitive issues, but in view of the fact that they are rooted in partiality, these sins need to be addressed. And so the first is that partiality is often at the root of classism. So classism is being prejudicial towards someone of a different socioeconomic status. 
And so this can be how the rich views the poor, but this can also be in how the poor view the rich. And so the rich views the poor. So what is the temptation for the rich person? The temptation for the rich, rich person is to look at the poor man and say, well, if he would just work harder, he wouldn't be in the position that he's in. If he would just spend his money better, then he wouldn't be poor. This is the temptation for the rich person. By the way, you know, globally, historically, pretty much all of us are rich. I mean, if it's, it's only when we start to compare ourselves to each other here in our circles that we feel like some people are rich and some people are not. And by the way, culture also sometimes will say, well, Christians don't really actually care about the poor. They just want to use the poor for political leverage. But Karl Marx actually said this. Karl Marx actually said that Christians are not on the side of the poor. But the data actually shows otherwise because there was a study that came out recently that showed that Christians are significantly more likely to give their time or their money to the poor. And we actually can see this to be true here in Winston-Salem. Most of the mercy ministries here in Winston-Salem are Christian organizations. The Center of Hope, which is not far from here, it is a homeless shelter for entire family units. And it is the only homeless shelter where an entire family can come in, the, in, in Forsyth County, the only one. And it's a Christian organization. And so the temptation can be for the rich to view the poor, you know, not well. And the other temptation is for the poor to not view the rich charitably because the poor person views the rich and they say, well, you know, all they care about is their nice things. The rich, they're just workaholics. I bet their kids are spoiled brats because they've never had to work anything, work, work for anything. And this is the temptation. And this is also unfair because partiality can work in both directions. And as a church, the question that we have to consider is this. Would we work harder to connect a well-put-together family where the husband just graduated from residency and now he's a surgeon, would we work harder to connect this family than we would the single mom with a couple kids from a broken background? Because we shouldn't. Because to do so would be to show partiality. Partiality is at the root of classism. Partiality is also at the root of racism. And so what is racism? Well, it depends on who you ask because it seems like everyone has their own opinion on what is racist, what is not racist. Well, racism for hundreds and hundreds of years has been defined as making judgments or discriminating against someone else based on their race or their ethnicity. Here's the thing. Part of our sinful nature is to make judgments on, upon others based on their race or their ethnicity. People will say, well, racism is a Southern thing. Well, racism is not a Southern thing. Racism is a sinner thing. Wherever sinners are, there there will be racism. And what's happened in our culture is we have become hyper aware of each other's race. So my wife, Olivia, she is half white, half Filipino. And all the time, all the time, someone will come up to her and they will say, and they're trying to ask her what her ethnicity is, but they'll say, hey, uh, where are you from? And she'll say, Wilmington. <laughs> and they'll say, oh, okay, okay, okay. I'll say, say well, where are your parents from? And she'll say, Florida. <laughs> and then at that point, they'll do either one or two things. They'll either just be like, okay, and they'll sort of walk off. Or they'll finally get around, around to asking the correct question, which is, what is your ethnicity? And what's really bad is if someone comes up to her and says, hey, um, what are you? She gets that question. And she's like, how do you respond to that? It's like, I'm a human. It's just what happens. Now, 
as an image bearer of God, is your ethnicity something that should be appreciated? Of course, because God created you exactly how he wanted you to. But we need to be careful not to make judgments and assumptions of others based on their skin color because to do so is to show partiality. And here's what our natural tendency is. Our natural tendency, let's say that you're walking into a lunchroom. And on one side of the lunchroom is a small table with people that look just like you. On the other side is a table of people that don't look like you. Now, what goes through your mind in that moment? Well, a lot of it's probably subconscious. It, all of this happens in like a second. But what probably happens is something like this. You walk, you walk up and you look at the table of people that are like you. So, okay, like me, not like me. Like me, therefore safe. Safe, therefore comfortable. Comfortable, therefore beneficial to me. Now, is it wrong to want to sit with people who look like you? No, it's not. But is it wrong to try to avoid people who don't look like you? Yes, it is, because to do so is to show partiality. But why am I talking about this? It's because racism is rooted in the sin of partiality. So partiality is also at the root of not valuing the most vulnerable, which leads me to a less controversial issue, abortion. There is no group of people in our society that is more vulnerable than the unborn. Who is unable to speak for themselves? The unborn. Who has absolutely no worldly advantage? It's the unborn. And you see, abortion is the absolute opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is Jesus Christ saying, I will die for you. I will die in your place for your sin. And abortion is the opposite. Abortion is saying, you will die for me. Now, in a room this size, if you are in here and you have had an abortion or if you've encouraged someone to get an abortion, then you need to hear me say that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That when you come to Christ with your sin, you are met with grace and forgiveness and not condemnation. When you come to Christ with your past, Instead of being cast aside for what you've done, you are brought close. But in view of the fact that the unborn child is made in the image of God, abortion has to be talked about. By the way, some people will say, well, Christians don't really care about the kids after they're born. All they care about is the unborn. Well, the data actually argues against this as well because there was a study that came out recently that showed that Christians are actually two and a half times more likely in the United States to adopt. Why is this? It's because Christians value the most vulnerable. The vulnerable also applies to the elderly. I feel like this is something we don't talk about nearly enough, but Christians, we need to advocate for the elderly to be treated with dignity as they age. We need to advocate for even after the elderly are not as productive to society as they once were, we need to be advocating for them to be treated well and with care and with lots and lots of dignity. The vulnerable also applies to those with disabilities. So a couple years ago when I was living in Chapel Hill, I worked for an organization that took care of people with disabilities. And so I was a caregiver for either a man with autism or a young man with severe cerebral palsy. And the young man with cerebral palsy, he was blind, he couldn't walk, he couldn't talk, couldn't feed himself or clothe himself. He was basically totally dependent on others for his care. And yet, despite all that, he, because he is made in the image of God, he is more valuable than Secretariat or whichever thoroughbred won the Kentucky Derby last year that's worth millions and millions of dollars. Why? 
Well, it's because to be made in the image of God means that you have inherent dignity, value, and worth, regardless of your age or regardless of how much you can contribute to society. And so Christians need to be on the front lines of advocating for the elderly and for those who have disabilities to be treated with care and not cast off to the fringes of society. And so James is saying in this text, he says, if you treat someone based on their outward appearance or their worldly advantages, then you're dishonoring them. But at the end of this section, what James is gonna do is he's going to again remind them of why they shouldn't show partiality. And so let's look back starting in verse six. Verse six says this. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And so what James does here is he reminds the Christians, he says, you have been given an honorable name. And here's the thing about taking, taking of a name. It, it's personal and it's permanent. So I did a wedding last weekend. And one of the things that I said was that marriage is a permanent covenantal union. So taking a name is permanent, but it's also personal. The, the taking of a name is, changing your last name is a very personal thing. But this is what happens, or this is what has happened to every person who's become a Christian. You have been given a new name. You have been given an honorable name. Because if you are a Christian, that means that you have been forgiven by God, you have been accepted by God, and you have been adopted by God. And what James is saying in this passage is he says, how can you possibly show partiality towards others when God has not shown partiality towards you? What he's doing is he's reminding them, he says, you were guilty, but God forgave you. He says, you rejected God, but God accepted you. He's saying, you were a spiritual orphan. You were spiritually poor, but God adopted you. And so in response to this, how can you possibly show partiality to others? If you think about how you live your life, if you are currently showing people partiality or, or if you are being partial towards people, the poor man or those who are not like you, how do you think that you would have interacted with Jesus Christ if you had interacted with him when he was in his early 30s? Because if you had come across him in his early 30s, the conversation would have probably went something like this. So um, Jesus, where'd you go to college? I didn't. You travel much? No, I, I walk everywhere I go and I've never been more than 200 miles from my house. Where are you from? Well, I'm from a small town uh, in the middle of nowhere. My parents are poor. Where do you live? You live in a nice neighborhood? Homeless. What about your family? You got a nice family? Never been married? Any kids? Nope. If you were judging Jesus Christ based on the externals, you probably would have not thought very much of him. And yet, despite all that, Jesus himself, Jesus was God in the flesh. And so why should we not be judgmental? Well, it's an easy question. It's because God has not been judgmental towards you. That when you come to God, instead of assessing your position and rejecting you, what he does is he assesses your position and he draws you close. And again, when he assesses your position, he knows everything there is to know about your past, everything to know about the current situation you are in, but he wants to draw you in. And so why should we not show partiality? It's because God has not shown partiality towards us. James says in verse four, he says, you have made evil distinctions. But Paul says in Romans 10, he says that God has made no distinction. We see in Romans 10 that God has made no, that there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. 
or the young or the old, or the rich or the poor, or the black or the white, because the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. And then it says, for whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so regardless of where you are, regardless of how much you make, regardless of your, your skin color, just regardless of what circumstances you are in, God does not want to be judgmental to you. If you come to God in repentance and faith, you will be forgiven, accepted, and adopted by God. You will be given an honorable name. You will be called son of God, daughter of God. And so as we wrap up here, as we wrap up, who, who have you been rejecting that you need to bring close? When you think about the last month, year of your life, who have you been rejecting that you need to bring close? For some of you, it might be a family member that you don't really get along well with. For some of you, it might be a classmate or a sweetmate. If you're in middle school or high school, it might be that kid in your class that doesn't really fit in. Maybe what you need to do is this week, you need to invite them to come sit with you and your friends. For some of you, it might be the mom that you don't really see eye to eye with. It might be your neighbor. Who have you been rejecting that you need to bring close? And then secondly, when you think about how you treat others, where do you need to repent? When you think about how you treat others who are not like you and your attitude towards those who are not like you, where do you need to repent? Because here's the honest truth. All of us in here show partiality in some way. It's just a matter of how it manifests itself. And so what we need to do is we need to come to God and we need to say, Lord, would you show me the areas of my heart that I'm being partial so that I can change and so that I can repent? And so as people who have been welcomed by God and as people who have been not judged by God and cast off, we need to be quick to welcome others and to bring others in. Pray with me. Father, I thank you that though you were rich, yet for our sake, you became poor so that we, through your poverty, might become rich. Father, I just thank you and praise you that, that you assess our position and you don't cast us off. You bring us close. Lord, you offer us grace instead of condemnation. And so, Father, I just pray that you would just expose in our hearts the areas that are displeasing to you would you just help us to treat others and to view others in the way that you treat them, in the way that you view them? Father, help us to be a people, a people that has, have received great mercy. Help us to extend that same mercy to others. Pray all this in Jesus' name.